This morning we will be considering Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, as part of our Foundations series. These are the words of God. We will be starting at Hebrews chapter 12, 28, so that we get our context. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body. Our God and Father, we pray now, open your word to us by the Spirit that we might understand these words, that they might fill us up, O Lord God, that we would be your faithful sons and daughters in this day and time. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 13 of Hebrews is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks in Scripture because it makes us think that the subject matter is changing, but it's not. It's still talking about worshiping God in the midst of a shaking world. It's just shifting the focus to what that worship looks like as we live it out in a world whose foundations are breaking apart while we are seeking to build on the rock that never fails, which is Christ and His Word, the Scriptures. Chapter 13 addresses four areas where our worship of God will display itself in transformed lives and in stark contrast to the idolatrous culture around us. Those four areas are, number one, love in the local church. Number two, the marriage union. Number three, wealth and the blessing of God. And number four, authority and submission in the local church. Now I want you to notice just at the front end that all four of these areas begin either with the local church or with the families, the the individual households that God created in the beginning to reflect His household, which is the church. And the point we need to observe from that is this is where you start pouring the concrete. Psalm 11 verse 3 asks the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, the implied answer is pour a new foundation on the rock of Christ and His Word. But where do you start pouring? You don't start pouring in Washington, D.C. You start pouring right here in the household of God and in your individual households which God made to reflect His household. So today we take up the first of these four areas, love in the local church. That's what our text is talking about. Notice that it starts in verse 1 with let brotherly love continue. It's talking about the love that we are to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord and Savior of all. And then also our text concludes by referring to the body of Christ. In verse 3, he says, you yourselves are in the body also. In other words, we are one body in Christ. Now this is not saying that the local church is the only place where we are to show love. What it is saying is that in a world that increasingly worships self 
and the secular state, the one place that people always need to be turned to be able to turn to to get a glimpse, a sense, a taste of life as it was meant to be, is the household of God, and then the individual households that reflect it. That's what's behind our text's focus on love in the local church. Now, one of the qualities of biblical love that is displayed in our text everywhere but is nowhere explicitly mentioned is the biblical quality of kindness. Now, kindness in English, good word, everybody should be kind, not a particularly powerful word, not particularly strong, it's just a couple of levels above nice. And so, but in the Greek, in the, Hebrew, in the New Testament, it is a very powerful word. It's a very powerful concept. It's very practical. It's very active. Because the root word means to provide what is needed. To provide what is needed. So biblical kindness, that quality of love, it excludes the person who has kindly feelings but never does anything. But it also excludes the person who engages in kindly actions, but doesn't actually help. Kindness in the Bible provides what is actually needed. And God is our example. Titus 3 verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice these aspects. God identified with us. He identified with us and he acted. And when he acted, he provided what was actually needed. He saved us. And we see the same concept in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Psalm 103, verse 4. Bless the Lord who redeems your life from destruction. He acts and he provides what is needed. And where does this come from? It comes from his loving kindness who crowns you with loving kindness. And we are commanded as Christians to have this same love that is reflective of the love of God in Christ. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this attitude... In yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally clutched. The the word here literally means a treasure that has been seized. It's like a pirate's booty. The pirate's not going to let go of his treasure. So what it's saying is God the Son did not regard his godness, his divinity, or his divine privileges as his precious. That he's not going to let go. No, he laid his divine privileges aside. He emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant. He was made in our likeness. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God identified with us And he acted in the only way that he could provide what was needed. He became one of us. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 
says love is kind. This kind of kindness, this kind of acting, this kind of providing what's needed is a quality of love itself. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, in English it says love is kind. In the Greek, there, there is no is there. And the word kind is not a noun in the Greek, it's a verb. It says love, kinds. We, that isn't, we can't do that in English, grammatically. But it's in the Greek. It's a, it's a verb. It's always acting. It's always providing what is needed. So it is especially this quality of divine love that we are to emulate toward one another in the body of Christ. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You know, it's interesting. This is not something that is commonly known. But uh, historians of the first century have pointed this out. The early Christians were also called by another name. They were called Christians, with an E instead of an I, Christians, based on the Greek word krusto, which is the word for kindness. Because that's what the unbelievers saw when they watched them in the local church. They saw a people who bound themselves to one another, who identified with one another, who were always acting to provide what was needed to one another. And so that's what they called them, Christians. So how does our text then in Hebrews 13 emphasize these qualities? Well, to understand this and to understand references to to strangers, to prisoners, to those who were being mistreated, We have to remember that Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who have been suffering persecution for the faith from the Jewish establishment for decades now. And they were being kicked out of their local synagogues, which meant it wasn't like it is today. You just go down the block to another church. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, none of your, none of your long-term friends, none of your family, none of your business associates, none of your clients would have anything to do with you. Life as you knew it was over. And so many of these Jewish Christians were being uprooted and displaced. They were having to move somewhere else to start life over to try to support their families. We read some about this in Acts chapter 7 and 8. After the martyrdom of Stephen, we read about a great persecution that started in Judea. And so the Jewish believers were scattered. They had to flee. And so you always have uh, Christians that can be moving through. Even in our own time, we see a lot of Christian families pulling up stakes We see a lot of Christian husbands and wives looking at one another and saying, we have to get out of here. We have to get our kids and we have to get out of here. And we see them moving somewhere else. And so you had a lot of that and you had a lot of Christians that were moving away from that kind of hardship and persecution. So you have Christians coming to town or passing through town and they need a place to stay. They need a meal to eat. They need fellow Christians who don't even know them 
to embrace them like long-term members of the local body. And the word entertained literally means love for a stranger, or if you really get down to the root of it, it means love for someone who looks different than you. That's what it literally means. They're not from your church. They're not from your town. They may not be from your country. But they have the same Lord. They have the same faith. They have the same baptism. They're your brother. They're your sister. And so there's emphasis here on opening your home, welcoming them with Christian love and fellowship and food and shelter, providing what is needed in the name of Christ. And in some cases, you see here, you had Christians who were even jailed or imprisoned for the faith. You have to remember back in those days, it wasn't as it is today, where the jailing authority is responsible for medical care, clothing, uh, food, and all that. Back in those days, oftentimes, the authorities were not going to clothe you or feed you or give you any medicine. You just you weren't just sent to prison as punishment. You were sent to prison for punishment. There's a difference. And so any kind of food, clothing, care was up to people who cared about you if you had any. And so oftentimes, depending on what you had been thrown in prison for, people would be afraid to come and see you or to bring you necessities out of fear that they would be punished because of being associated with you. Now, Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, because you remember he was in prison. He was waiting to go to trial before Caesar because the Jewish authorities were trying to kill him. They weren't even going to let him get to trial. They were going to kill him. And so he had to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen to even preserve his life at the time. But he mentions there in 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. And so what is being said in our text here is, you do not abandon one another because you were bound together in Christ. So he says, you act like you're chained to that fellow Christian who is in the prison. And so what we see here is that hospitality has a central role to the love that is commanded here to the local church. And this is a theme that we see in the scriptures. Romans 12 verse 9. Now you remember Romans 12 verse 9. It's the same kind of pattern we see here in Hebrews. Because it starts out talking about worship. In light of the mercies of God, present your bodies, present your whole selves to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And remember, the word for worship and the word for service is the same word. To worship is to serve, to serve is to worship. And so it is always lived out. And then he goes on in Romans 12, verse 9, and he says what? Let love... Be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Let it be real. And then in verse 10 he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And honor giving preference to one another. You identify with one another. Verse 13, Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. So in other words, it's assumed 
that if you're distributing to needs of the saints, if you're giving preference to one another, well, of course you're going to engage in hospitality. It's the natural thing that you do. So being in one another's harm, uh, homes is a natural context for ministering to one another. And never forget that in the New Testament, ministry is not envisioned as some as something that simply comes from those who are in some sort of an official position. Pastor, elder, deacon. Yes, that includes ministry. But ministry is something that takes place within the entire body. In fact, the vision of the Bible is that the main ministry of the church is your ministry to one another. The ministry that comes from me as pastor and your elders, that is an equipping ministry. That is to equip you to be able to minister to one another. And you see this idea in Colossians 3, for example, verse 15. You were called in one body. And then in verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Is your friendship in Christ, your relationships with one another in Christ, you're constantly ministering to one another. You're constantly picking one another up. You're giving one another wisdom. Sometime for a close friend, you may have a friend in Christ that you see starts to struggle in a certain area. And as a friend in Christ, you have that relationship to come alongside them and say, how you doing? How are you doing here? And to be able to help them. The reason why it mentions specifically psalms and then hymns and spiritual songs, because you do have some different songs in Scripture other than the psalm. But the reason why they're mentioned in particularly is because the, psal- the Psalter, the 150 psalms, together with the wisdom literature, that's where God takes all the theology of the Scriptures, pours it into a blender, blends it all up, and then starts pouring it into glasses in different areas. It goes, here's all the theology of the Bible in terms of human experience in a fallen world. That's what you have. And that's why it's really the counseling manual for the Christian life. So our text gives us an intriguing incentive to exercise love and hospitality even to strangers by saying that by doing so, some believers have unwittingly entertained angels. Verse 2. Now, almost certainly, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 18, where we see Abraham, he's sitting in the, uh, the doorway of his tent. He's come to a certain area, had lots of flocks there grazing, and now they have where their tents are, are pitched. And he looks up, and there's three men that are standing there. They just show up. Now it's going to turn out that these three men, or one of them, is actually the Lord. It's the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before He became a man in the person of Jesus, along with two angels. But all He can see originally is it just looks like three men, three strangers who show up at His encampment. And so... Abraham scrambles and Sarah scrambles and their servants scramble all to show hospitality to these men. And then in the course of conversation with them, he's going to realize over time, and so is Sarah, 
who they really are. Now that's what Hebrews 13.2 is referring to. And it's telling us, don't forget about that. Now this is one of those verses you read, by entertaining strangers, some have unwittingly entertained angels. One of those verses you read and you go, huh, what am I supposed to do with that exactly? Does that mean I'm supposed to wonder if every stranger is an angel? I don't think that's a very good uh, recipe for Chris and Ethics. You, you will be walking around looking at everybody like this. You really, is that is it really you? Um, I think what it is saying, though, a way that we can apply this is to remember Christ's words in Mark 9, 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ... Assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Like some of the things that will stand out to Christ are things that we will forget about. We forgot all about that cup of water that we gave to another brother or sister in Christ in some kind of a setting or something we did for them. We forgot all about it. Jesus won't. He will never forget And so I think that is something that we can remember as we go through life and act out. So what are some other texts in love or on love in the New Testament? Love in the body of Christ. What will they add to our text in Hebrews 13? Well, there's a lot of things because in Hebrews 13, he's just touching very quickly. There's a lot of things, but I'm going to mention four. Number one, love is the only thing that builds up the body of Christ. Love is the only thing that actually builds up one another in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.11 Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body. Verse 16 The whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Number two, love is the core of true spirituality. Love is the core of true spirituality. It is not knowledge. It is not gifts, spiritual gifts. It is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Knowledge is great. Spiritual gifts are great. But they're like tools. They don't benefit anyone of themselves. And if they're misused, they can do harm. Love is the only hand that can pick up these tools and use them to bless other people. So Paul's theme in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, for example, is don't worry about spiritual gifts. Focus on love. Pursue love. Because if there is love the gifts will fall into place. They will take care of themselves. 
they will do what they're supposed to do, which is serve others in the body in love. Number three, love is our only badge. Love is our only badge. John 13, 34, we've already referenced it. Love one another as I have loved you, says Jesus. By this, all will know you are my disciples. It is only love within the body of Christ that God is pleased to work through to make an unbeliever realize what I am seeing here is not normal. What I'm seeing among these people is not normal in this world. And it opens them up and it makes them say, the God of the Bible is real. The God of the Bible is here in the midst of these people. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. In other words, the love of Christ manifested to one another in the local body, that's our credentials to the world. That's our badge. That's our authentication. And Jesus only gave us one badge. And that's it. Number four. Deep love within the local body of Christ is the first indication that God is on the move. Deep love within the local body of Christ is the first indication that God is on the move. That God is stirring. That God is laying the groundwork for a great work of reformation and revival. And there's a whole book in the Bible that is about this. But you have to know the timing and chronology of the various books and how they overlap to see it. Now the book I'm talking about is the book of Ruth. Now you see Ruth, that book is all about the kindness of God's love as it manifests itself in the lives of those who really believe in him in the midst of really hard times. That was the setting. Israel was in really hard times. Ruth's husband, I mean Naomi's husband, they moved uh, to uh, a foreign land because of the difficulties. Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die. She's left with Ruth and her other daughter-in-law. And so Ruth is going to send them back to their own people because she is old and she is penniless. She has nothing. She thinks, I'm sinking like a boat anchor. If you cling to me, you're just going to go straight down. So she's thinking of them. She's identifying with them. She's trying to provide what is needed for them. And she says to them, Ruth 1 verse 8, The Lord deal kindly, there's that word, The Lord deal kindly with you as you have with me. You see, this kindness of the Lord has already shown up between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old. Verse 14, but Ruth clung to her and said, verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more so, if anything but death parts you and me. You see they're identifying 
with her aged and penniless mother-in-law, clinging, acting, providing what is needed. That's what this whole book is about. The kindness of God showing up in the lives of these people in the midst of really, really hard circumstances. And what we see implicit in the text is the reason why this Ruth, who has grown up as a pagan, has come to faith in the God of Israel. And the reason why we see this kind of character in her is because she has seen it in her mother-in-law in Naomi. That's what God has used as the badge to open her up. And now we see her reflecting this kind of love. And we will see them then travel to the land of Israel. And they are impoverished. And so Ruth will be going out and gleaning in the fields, getting the leftovers to bring home to her aged mother-in-law. We see them, this kind of kindness in the midst of hardship shown to one another. And then there's a, a third person that is going to come into this circle of kindness, and it is Boaz. Boaz, who is kind of the town bachelor and has, is a man of substance and is a godly man, he notices Ruth gleaning in the field. He finds out that she's connected to Naomi. She's the daughter-in-law who's traveled there, who has clung to her mother-in-law and who is helping to provide for her. And so he tells his men, he says, you drop grain, drop grain for her to find. And then when she comes home and she's got way more grain than she would normally be able to get in a day, Naomi starts to think, and she goes, somebody, somebody is dropping grain for her to pick up. Show, somebody is showing kindness. She wants to know who it is, and it turns out, well, it's Boaz. And she recognizes Boaz as a distant relative from Naomi. Now, Naomi's family actually has land. The problem is that this has been hawked many years before, for unpaid debts. So for her to be able to get the land back in the family, the land has to be redeemed. In other words, those debts have to be paid. Now there's another relative who's closer, who under biblical law really should step forth and redeem that land out of kindness to his relative Naomi. So Boaz forces the action. He brings the relative before the elders of the town and he says, you know, redeem the land. But this closer relative says, no, I refuse to redeem it. You redeem it, referring to Boaz. Now what this man is doing is he's acting practically as long as we forget the God of the universe. As long as we forget that this is God's world. And it runs according to his character. What this man is reasoning is that, look, if I spend my money to redeem this land which is going to go to Naomi, that dissipates my estate. That lessens my total wealth, which lessens what my heirs are going to receive. So he thinks he's acting in self-interest, but he's not because he's forgetting that this is God's world. And God is the author of every good gift and every good thing. So Boaz steps forward and he redeems the land. Naomi tells Ruth, this is what you do. At night, when Boaz and all the men are sleeping up in the threshing floor, go in very quietly, uncover his feet, and lay down at his feet. And so she does this, and this is a way of her saying, appealing to the kindness of Boaz, saying, Please marry me. 
and take my mother-in-law and me under your wing. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, sees her there, he understands what it means, and that's exactly what he wants to do. So he proceeds to do that. So between these three unlikely people, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, you see this just tremendous amount of, of kindness toward one another in really, really difficult times. And you see the power of this love and kindness and the fact that Ruth is, is one of the few books of the Bible that everybody knows. Even unbelievers know about the book of Ruth. Unbelievers love the book of Ruth. Unbelievers quote Ruth in their weddings because the love is so beautiful and it is so powerful and it is so tangible. Even unbelievers want to experience that kind of love even if they think it's too good to be true. That is the power of that badge of the love of God reflected in his people in the local church. And at the end of this story, Ruth and Boaz have a son. His name is Obed. And in, the God, in God's providence, Obed is going to have a son named Jesse. And Jesse is going to have a son named David, the shepherd king of Israel. One of the most vivid pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Through David, God will completely turn around Israel's fortunes, bring Israel up out of the pit into which she had fallen and make her ride on the heights of the earth. But there's more. If you do the chronologies, or if you let other experts do them, such as James Jordan, you will realize that the book of, overlap, uh, the book of Ruth overlaps with the book of Judges. And specifically, the time of Samson and Samuel. You see, Obed and Samson and Samuel were all born right at about the same time. Obed was born to Ruth, who was an impoverished widow. Samuel was born to Hannah, who was buried. Samson was born to Manoah and his wife, who were also barren. Through these three sons, God is going to work all at the same time to bring about reformation and revival in Israel through Samuel. He is going to work to begin to break the iron grip of the Philistines through Samson. And he is going to work to raise up David the shepherd king through Obed. But that's not where it all starts. It does not start with Obed, Samuel, and Samson. It starts with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, where love and kindness, loyalty and devotion to one another showed themselves. So if we ask ourselves, what was the first sign that God was on the move? What was the first sign that God was stirring? What was the first sign that God was going to act to bring reformation and revival in Israel? It was the love and the kindness shown by Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in the midst of very, very difficult times. 
We need to take that lesson because we are praying to God for reformation and revival all the time. That's what must happen. And we cry out to God for it. If we are to experience God's mercy in that way today, if he is to rise up and to go on the march, the very first sign that we will see is this kind of love and kindness, loyalty and devotion among ordinary Christians like us. That will be the first sign. And may God grant it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.